This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. And after tolerating a few of the anthropologist's questions, the Indua told him, look, it's not what we believe, it's what we fear. We see there's danger out there, we have to take care of that danger. And if you look at the Buddhist teachings, he really does deal with this issue of danger. It seems to come from that perception, not so much what he believed, but it's what the dangers he saw in looking for happiness and things that age, grow ill and die, as he was aging, growing ill and dying. He was wondering if there was a way to find some, some protection from that, from those dangers. He saw basically there are dangers both outside and in. Um, it is a dangerous world we live in, and we ourselves pose dangers to ourselves and to others. Um, and it's imp- interesting that he has this double focus for his perception of dangers. If you look at the media right now, they tell us all the dangers are outside. It's the terrorists, it's the Republicans, it's the Democrats, it's somebody out there. Um, you look at modern sort of health, self-help movements, and I include a lot of modern Dharma teachers in that, saying, no, the dangers are all in here, as we don't really trust our interconnectedness, we don't trust our present awareness, we don't trust um, the basic goodness of the human heart. And because of that lack of trust, we tend to create dangers for ourselves. Um, now, from the Buddhist point of view, what people can do to you outside is nothing compared to what you can do to yourself in terms of what, in his response, I guess, to the modern Dharma teachers, was that trying to find trust in your awareness, your present awareness, is heedless, because you're not just simply aware in the present moment, you're also active in the present moment, and your actions are going to have consequences now and on into the future. And you have to think about that. You can't just focus on the present and hope that you'll be safe. You can't trust the human heart to be basically good, because, as he said, the human heart is capable of change, very quick change. And here he was, he was a master of analogies. And he said, there's no analogy for how quickly the mind can change. You can reverse yourself so quickly that even the blink of an eye is too slow, as a comparison. And as far as interconnectedness, he says, basically, it's because we live in an interconnected world that we suffer, because interconnectedness is very unstable. You think of the weather patterns right now, the weather system, it's an interconnected system. And it doesn't deliver goodness to everybody. Uh, the storms back east, sometimes we have nice weather here, they have storms back east, or they have nice weather there, and we have horrendous heat waves and fires and whatnot. And so you can't really find safety in basic goodness, or in present awareness, or in interconnectedness. Instead, he said, you have to look at your actions, and look at the consequences of your actions, see where your actions are coming from, where your actions lead, and learn from your mistakes so that you can get more and more skillful in the way you act. He actually saw that there were three levels of danger altogether. Um, the inside dangers, of course, come from unskillful actions, and also the views that would lead you open to outside dangers, which are other people's opinions about um, where happiness is found, what you can do to get there, what happiness is. Um, in other words, it, and then that would lead you to act in ways that are unskillful. In other words, outside dangers are not so much what other people can do to you as what they get you to do because it's through the consequences of your own actions that you will then experience either pleasure or pain, happiness or sorrow. 
But beyond that, there's another level of danger, the simple fact that even if you lead a skillful life, you're still subject to aging, illness, and death. Um, the Buddha said there are four types of karma. There's the karma that's good, the karma that's bad, there's karma that's mixed. And then he says the karma that's neither, and the karma that's neither is interesting. He said, this leads to the end of karma. This is the path that he taught. And that path is actually the, what leads to ultimate safe, safety, which of course is the safety of the deathless, the safety of nirvana. It's interesting that nirvana is not the only name that the Buddha gave to the goal. He also called it refuge, harbor, safety, security, shelter. In other words, it's a place of ultimate safety from aging, illness, and death, even from the results of your own skillful actions on a, on a mundane level. And it's interesting also that one of the points we'll be getting to is that the word for a refuge, sarana, also means that what you remember. This will be an important point to uh, keep in mind as, as we go through the evening. Now, the Buddha, traditionally the refuge is three things. Refuge in the Buddha, refuge in the Dharma, refuge in the Sangha. Um, and these refuges exist on three levels, corresponding to the three levels of danger. There are the external examples. That the, Buddha, the Buddha, as you know, the person who lived 2,600 years ago, who found the way to true happiness. The Dharma that he discovered would be, on the external level, would be not only what he discovered, but what else he taught, what's been memorized and passed down. The Sangha, on the external level, exists on two levels. There's the Sangha of the monastics who preserve the Dharma and ideally embody the Dharma in their practice, pass it on from generation to generation. And then there's also the noble Sangha, which includes both monastics and lay people who have had at least the first taste of awakening, which is called stream entry. And basically, we need to remember these examples because it's so easy to forget the examples that they set. In other words, to re regard the Buddha's awakening and the, the, path, the fact that he was alive, regard that as a central event in human history, and that it shapes our approach to the way we live. But we have to remember this, otherwise it's very easy to forget. Otherwise, and when we forget that, then it's very easy to fall for uh, you know, false examples as to what true happiness might be. You see somebody with a nice Volvo S90, you say, this must be the way. <laughs> and you don't look carefully, you know, is this person really happy or not? But they can tell you, oh, they're really happy. And we, we've seen a lot of people like this who claim all kinds of happiness, but you look at the way they lead their lives, something's lacking. And having the example of the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha helps us to remember not to be swayed by these people. That's one level, is the external example that the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha um, provide for us. The second level is our in own internal practice, as we internalize their qualities. You know, what was, it that made, what was it that made the Buddha able to awaken? What did he embody as he taught? Can we learn how to internalize those qualities so that they become our internal qualities? This becomes a refuge on a second level. We learn how to rely on our own practice as we develop these qualities within. And then finally, there's the ultimate goal, which is nirvana, which provides safety from the dangers of aging, illness, and death. Now, this promise, this practice of internalizing is something we have to do for ourselves. The Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha can't come in and do the work for us. One of the principles of the Dharma is that the Dharma protects those who practice it. In other words, you practice the Dharma, that practice then provides your protection. To internalize these examples means, again, that you have to come back to yourself. You have to learn how to rely on yourself. And the Buddha talks about taking the self as one's refuge. And he equates that with the practice of right mindfulness. 
you practice right mindfulness, that becomes, that's what enables you to rely on yourself, make yourself your refuge. Now it's important here to realize that mindfulness is not simply bare awareness, it's not acceptance, it's not you know, acceptance of whatever is coming up. The Buddha actually identified three qualities that you have to develop to develop right mindfulness. The first one is mindfulness itself, which he defines as a faculty of your memory. It's something you keep in mind as you go through the day. Alertness is focused not just on the present moment, but focused on what you're doing in the present moment. Remember, and then remember that your actions are the most important things in your life, so you have to focus carefully. Be alert. What am I doing right now? What are the results? Can you read the results so that you can adjust your actions to make them more skillful? And then the third quality is ardency, when you put your whole heart into doing it right. This comes down to basically what you learn lessons from the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and then you have to remember them. That's the mindfulness. And then you apply them. Apply them means paying attention to what you're doing. If you see what you're doing is not skillful, you make changes. That's alertness and ardency working together. If what you're doing is skillful, you try to maintain that. You don't just forget it and throw it away. And it's when you have these qualities working together that you can actually provide a refuge for yourself and you can start internalizing the example of the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. The problem is it's easy to forget when either when events outside get overwhelming and other people are behaving ways that threaten your security, or, uh, and also when your emotions get very strong. Again, it's easy for to forget um, the, lesson, the lessons that we've learned, and then we start acting in unskillful ways and causing danger to ourselves again. Now the practice of mindfulness helps, help, helps you to remember in the ways, especially when you get into an emotional state where you tend to forget. You know what anger is like, you say, I don't care what the Buddha said, I'm going to go for what I want. Or when greed comes along, or lust comes along, and all of a sudden it doesn't, what the Buddha said doesn't matter. And this, you have to remind yourself that it does. It's like being in a bad dream. You know, how do you get out of a bad dream? Well, first you have to recognize, okay, there is another reality. This dream is not the only reality. In fact, the other reality is, is more real. And then you're alert to the fact that hey, this is a dream. You know? And then you make the effort to get out. So you've got mindfulness, alertness, ardency, getting you out of the dream. The same way this helps get you out of emotional states where you tend to either forget about the Buddha and Dharma and Sangha or else say that it doesn't really matter. Um, there is a novel by Kurt Vonnegut called Sirens of Titan. I don't know if anyone here has read that. Mm-hmm. Read it? Okay. One of the best Dharma novels there is. Um, the, the, one of the characters, however, is uh, the main character, in fact, is in one part of the novel, he's been kidnapped and taken to Mars. He's going to become part of this interplanetary army which is being trained to go back to attack the Earth. And as time goes on, he's beginning to realize something's really wrong with the organization that's organizing this army. It's, it's fishy. And because he figures this out, it becomes obvious to the people who are running the army and they erase his memory. And then he figures it out again, and they have to erase his memory again. Now, they can't totally erase his memory, they have to leave a little something, otherwise he becomes un- non-functional. And he begins to realize after a while that okay, there, there is part of his mind that will not get erased. And he plants a little memory in there, which is that he's written a letter to himself. And after, after the operation, when they erase his memory, he's supposed to where that letter is, he goes, finds the letter, reads the letter, and the letter gives him instructions as to who he should trust, who he should not trust, important lessons to pick up again. It'd be interesting to think, and if the Buddha were writing a letter like that to you, what would he put in the letter, and where would he tell you to put it? Where, he'd put it? where he would have you put it, of course, is 
with your breath, with your body in the present moment. This is one of the reasons why the first you know, frame of reference in mindfulness practice is your breath. Because it is close to you. When emotions come along and you remember, hey, I'm breathing. And there should be some lessons that go along with the fact that you've been used to putting good Dharma lessons in with your breath as you meditate. And those should be able to come out as you take a, take a breath and you know, begin to remember the lessons. So that's where the Buddha would have you place it. Put it in your body in the present moment. And the first thing to remember is his perspective on what kind of losses matter and which ones don't. Because you, when you're thinking in terms of protection, thinking of protecting yourself from danger, you have to say, okay, some things, it doesn't matter if I lose them, other things do. And so the question is, which is which? And his, interest, and his perspective is very interesting because it goes against most of society. He says, the loss of your health, loss of your wealth, Loss of your relatives doesn't really matter. What really matters is loss of your virtue and loss of your right view. So you try to keep those safe. That's the first lesson. Because if you lose your virtue, you lose your, your right view, everything else falls, falls apart. What else would he give as a lesson? Here it's good to look at the lessons from the example of the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sanghas, particularly the Buddha. Um, there are three qualities that the Buddha is said to embody. One is discernment, the other is purity, the third is compassion. These are all qualities of the character. They're not particular ideas, but it's qualities of his character that enabled him to find awakening and then to teach it to others. In terms of a discernment, it was when he began to realize that, okay, if he was going to be truly happy, he had to find something that was lasting, something that was not subject to aging, illness, and death, what he called the, the noble search. The way he says, most people search for happiness and things that age, grow ill, and die. They themselves age, grow ill, and die. What does this accomplish? Which it keeps the economy going, but otherwise it doesn't really accomplish much. He said, you want, if you really want to find true happiness, if your life wants to accomplish something, you should look for something that doesn't age, doesn't grow ill, doesn't die. He realized that he was going to have to make sacrifices in order to do that. And so that was also part of his discernment, realizing that okay, this is more important than a lot of the other things that he had to give up. And in fact, he says that one of the measures of your discernment is when you realize there are things you have to give up for something of a greater value, you're willing to give them up. It's a very basic principle. It's so basic that there's a verse in the Dhammapada, he says, a, a wise person sees that if there's a greater happiness that comes from abandoning and a lesser happiness, the wise person gives up the lesser happiness for the sake of the greater. This is so obvious that the, the British translator of the Dhammapada, one of the British translators, put a footnote in his translation and said, this could not possibly be the true meaning of this verse. It's so obvious. We don't need a Buddha to tell us this. <laughs> and we, you know, maybe obvious, but it's not the way people live, you know. I have a f friend who is a, an author, and she's an, also a university professor, which meant that whenever her novels came out, she would give talks at the alumni clubs which meant that she would have to find an, an, um, a reading from the novel, it's a little passage, ten minutes long, that would make sense in ten minutes, um, to read to the different clubs. And one of her novels, she has a character, a Chinese woman, whose mother has died, she's still young. Her father swears up and down that he's not going to remarry, he's going to devote his life to looking after the kids. And sure enough, after six months, he sent off in government business and comes back with a new wife. <laughs> and the new wife is a courtesan, but she's a good woman. And so she takes seriously the idea that she wants to be a good mother to the, the stepchild. And so the young woman is talking about how one day the stepmother was playing chess with her and saying, okay, if you really want to be happy in life, you have to figure out there's one thing 
that you want more than anything else and you have to be willing to sacrifice everything else for that one thing. And the daughter's kind of half listening, half not listening, as children do. But she's beginning to notice that her mother, is a re- stepmother, is a really sloppy chess player. She's losing this piece, losing that piece. And so she starts getting aggressive, thinking her mother is a you know, poor chess player. Well, what happens, of course, is the mother has been setting a trap. And the girl gets more aggressive, and the mother, checkmate. So the way she's playing chess, of course, is the way she's, she's illustrating the basic point she wants to make, which is if you want to win at chess, you have to be willing to lose a few pieces. And so my friend said she read this to two or three alumni clubs and then realized that she couldn't read it anymore because nobody liked the message. (laughs) We all want to win at chess and keep all our pieces. Um, So so the Buddha was wise enough to say, you can't keep all your pieces. You've got to be willing to sacrifice some some things. And so secondly, you have to look at... So discernment is your ability to talk yourself into doing the things that you know that you don't like to do but will give good results. And talk yourself out of doing the things that you know that you don't like to do but see, talk yourself into doing things that you don't like to do but will give good results and talk yourself out of doing things that you like to do but will give bad results. In other words, you have to take the long term. Look at the long term. And that's, that's a lot of Buddhist wisdom right there. You don't just go by what feels right. You don't go by what, you're, you're, what the flow is. Sometimes you have to go very much against the flow but it's your ability to make yourself want to go against the flow and enjoy it when you succeed. That's a large part of wisdom. In terms of the Buddha's purity, he wasn't swayed by honors and wealth while he was on the path or after he began awakening. He realized that he wouldn't teach until he'd attained a goal. So he didn't just sort of set himself up as a teacher, say, when he learned this or learned that. It wasn't until he attained full awakening that he would teach. And when he did teach, he wouldn't accept payment for his teachings. And no dana talks, no payment for the teaching. That one time a Brahmin offered him a teacher's fee, which was some food. And the Buddha said, you know, no one on earth now can eat that. I will not accept it. He said, take it and throw away on the dirt where there's no animals, or throw it in some water where there are no animals. The Brahmin throws into the water, the, the food sizzles, you know. And the Buddha, the Buddha was that pure. Finally, compassion. Um, you think of all the things he could have done after his awakening, he decides to teach people how not to suffer. And wherever there were people, he would, he would go, no matter what their status in life was. Examples of teaching lepers, teaching outcasts, going to find whoever he thought was, was willing to be ready for the teaching regardless. Going to women who had lost their children, teaching them lessons so that they could overcome their grief, and then they become, eventually they become arahants as well. So you see in the, in the Buddha's life, he, example, he sets an example of wisdom, purity, compassion. He taught for 45 years, walking all over India, which is not easy, you know. But that to teach the lesson, because he wanted to set forth a teaching that would last. You look at the Vinaya and all the rules that he had to make, and this monk comes with this question, this monk comes with that question. I'm even little things about what kind of medicine to use, what kind of things to use when you're putting the medicine in your nose. And, and imagine having to have the patience to set down all the rules for that kind of stuff. It was out of his compassion that he did this. Now he, he gives an instructions on how to develop wisdom, compassion, and purity in yourself. And they all center on how, to, how you should go about your search for happiness. The Buddha, the Buddha never says that the, the search for happiness is a selfish thing or something to be embarrassed about. He said, this is how we live. So you want to learn how to do it heedfully. 
when you search for happiness heedfully, you actually develop wisdom, compassion, purity, good qualities of the character. For example, with wisdom, he says, wisdom begins by asking people you think are wise, what when I do it will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? What when I do it will lead to my long-term harm and pain? The wisdom here lies in seeing that there is such thing as long-term happiness. It's not just waves coming on the shore. Things are not that impermanent or inconstant. There is long-term. Secondly, long-term, of course, is better than short-term. And it's going to depend on your actions. You realize it doesn't just come floating by and it's not just a, a random thing. It does depend on people's actions. So that's the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of compassion is when you realize that you want happiness, you love yourself. Other beings love themselves just as fiercely as you do. If your happiness depends on their harm, they're not going to stand for it. So both out of you know, realizing, okay, if I want to be too happy, truly happy, I've got to think about other people. And secondly, just the sense of fairness. Okay? They love themselves, I love myself. It wouldn't be fair for me to oppress them in my search for happiness. That's the beginning of compassion. And then finally, purity. The Buddha said, was teaching his son how to be pure. And he said, look at your actions. Take your actions as your mirror. Before you act, ask yourself, what do I expect to come from this action? Do I expect harm? If I expect harm, don't do it. If I don't expect any harm, go ahead and do it. If while I'm doing it, I see that harm is coming up, I should stop. If I see no harm, continue. When it's done, look at the long-term consequences. And if I see that I saw, caused harm, I should go talk it over with someone who has experience in the path and then learn from lessons from them. And then secondly, if I cause no harm, then I should take happiness in the fact that there is, you know, I'm progressing on the path. So again, it's all about searching for happiness in a wise and heedful way. This is how you become wise. This is how you become compassionate. This is how you become pure. So that's taking the Buddha as an example and beginning to internalize the qualities. In terms of the Dhamma, he basically said the Buddha puts right, the practice of right mindfulness as the guide for getting the mind into concentration. It's not like there's mindfulness practice and there's concentration practice in the Buddha's teachings. The instructions for mindfulness are how you get the mind into concentration. You can you know, keep the mind with one object, put aside any, any emotions around the world, and have these qualities of ardency, alertness, and mindfulness, getting the mind to stay solidly with that topic. Pulls you out of the world and creates a, a, a skillful inner world in which you have a sense of solidity and you're much less going to be swayed by events outside if you have this internal sense of well-being. This is what the practice of mindfulness is for. You might make a comparison. You, in, the, in, the four, in the Eightfold Path, the Buddha talks about right mindfulness. That's the recipe. His descriptions of jhana, what, what you want, and when you get the mind into concentration, those are the restaurant reviews. This is what it should be like when you do it well. Okay. So the two practices go together. Finally, in terms of the Sangha, the example of the conventional and the ideal Sangha. Let's focus on the ideal Sangha, okay? Um, as I said, it's not the Sangha in the modern usage. I mean, this is, group is not a Sangha, okay? We're a group of people who meditate. If you're Buddhist, you're part of what the Buddha calls the Barisa, his company of followers. But the Sangha is specifically those who have fully devoted their life to the practice. Um, and the example they set is by following the Buddha's example. And this, there's a, a teaching that the Buddha has. It's by practicing the Dharma in accordance with the Dharma. In other words, the way he taught it, not trying to invent new ways of 
formulating the Dharma, but actually figuring out, what did the Buddha teach? Let's try that. And instead of changing the Dharma to suit yourself, you change yourself to fit in with the Dharma. This is the basic principle of becoming a member of the Sangha. So these are some of the lessons that the Buddha would put in, in that letter. You know, work for wisdom, purity, and compassion. Develop mindfulness so that you have a s- solid state of concentration inside that you can use as a relative refuge as you are faced by issues in the world. So that once you have that sense of inner inner well-being, you're not tempted by the, the debates of the world outside to lead you, leave your sense of what's right and what's wrong. And finally, keep developing the Dharma in yourself. Follow and make yourself fit in with the Dharma, so that you know the ultimate Dharma, the ultimate Dharma, the deathless, will appear within you. In which case, that, in that case, you become a member of the noble sangha, and you become an example for other people. Which means that in doing, looking for your own true happiness, it's not a selfish thing. You're looking for true happiness, as I said, in a heedful way that embodies wisdom, compassion, purity. You provide a good example for the rest of the world. I mean, there's no way that we can go out and save other people, but we, if we can look after ourselves, take care of ourselves, we provide a good example so that they can take care of themselves. So these are some of the things I think that the Buddha would put in that letter. So you know, if someone erases your memory, in other words, greed, aversion, and delusion come in and erase your memory, you have something to remind yourself, okay, these are my true values, this is where true happiness is found. So that's how refuge functions in the Buddhist teachings. Any questions? So you talk about the pursuit of happiness. Um, I read something recently from Ajahn Chah that he said, you know, we develop good and abandon evil, but ultimately we have to let go of both good and evil and find equanimity in the center. He says, happiness No, it's not equanimity in the center. Oh, okay. We let go of good and evil, and that's when you find nirvana. Mm-hmm. It's that, you know, those four kinds of karma that I talked about. Mm-hmm. The Buddha calls them bright and dark. Bright karma is good karma, dark karma is bad karma, then there's mixed. And then the Eightfold Path is neither. You develop what's good, and then finally, okay, when you no longer need it, then you let it go. Like that image that John Cha gives of the banana. Those of you who weren't there on Saturday, he said, suppose you're coming back from the market with a banana. Someone comes up and asks you, what are you going to do with the banana? Why are you carrying it? He said, I'm going to eat it. Are you going to eat the peel? No. Then why are you carrying the peel? <laughs> smart, alecky, smart alecky question. Um, and the John Chas says, well, what would you answer that person? And the first thing he says, you answer with a desire. In other words, if you don't have the desire to come up with a good answer, the answer is not going to come. So he's making the point that you know, desire does have a role on the path. And then the second part of the answer is, okay, if the time hasn't come to let go of the peel. I hold on to the peel as it serves its function. When the time comes to eat the banana, that's when I throw the peel away. Otherwise, the banana turns into mush. You know. The same way there are things that you have to hold on to. You hold on to your goodness in the path. And then the point come, when the point comes you no longer need it, that's when you throw it away. Yes? Um, so you talked about um, knowing or discerning between the lesser happiness and the greater happiness. Um, how do we know uh, which one's the lesser happiness <coughs> Okay, you, you start with lessons from the Dharma, and then when it's not clear even from lessons of the Dharma, this is when you have to just say, okay, let's give it a try. But you think about it, you know, what, what would be meaningful you, for you in the long term. One test I found is useful. Suppose you're on your deathbed, and you're looking back on your life, 
and you made a decision, or you're about to make a decision, what, what decision do you think that you will look back on and say, I'm glad I made that decision? And go with that. But it's always, you know, it's always an experiment and issues like that. So you have to be willing to say, okay, I'm willing to make the experiment and learn the lesson from that. If it turns out to be a mistake, okay, try to undo the mistake. Because the Buddha gives you some lessons up to a point, and they says from here you have to develop your own mindfulness, alertness, and ardency. So you can start making judgments yourself. It's like those signs they used to have in Alaska for bear. They called it bear awareness. And, and it lists lots, you know, one to ten, the do's and don'ts, do's and don'ts, do's and don'ts. You know, bear comes at you, don't run. Um, you know, raise your arms, speak to the bear in a calm, reassuring voice. <laughs> if you look, you raise your arms so you look bigger, because the bears can't see very well. But it finally gets to the point where the bear has you pinned to the ground. And then they say, okay, play dead. Maybe the bear will go away. Um, maybe. <laughs> and this is where things start, you know, falling apart. Um, but it, and this is where you have to rely on your own powers of observation, because there comes a point. He says, if the bear starts chewing on you, try to discern whether the bear is chewing on you out of curiosity or out of hunger. And if it's curiosity, continue to play dead. If it's hunger, fight for all you're worth. You, know, you know, put your fingernails in the bear's eyes, or something like that, and the bear will go away. So that requires a lot of mindfulness and art, you know, alertness, right? To figure out, you know, if bears chewing on you, why they're chewing. <laughs> but there are a lot of incidents in life that are like that. Some issues, you know, the precepts cover, they're easy, yes, no, yes, no. But other things are more subtle, like you said. In which case you just have to use your, your best powers of judgment. Which hopefully are being developed in the practice. Okay. Questions? Yes, way in the back. Is the walk, wait, wait, wait for the walking mic to come. Well, the Buddha said, if when you have funds from having earned them rightly, um, you divide them into four, four categories. Now, he doesn't say they have to be equal categories. It's up to you to decide how to proportion it. But one should be for your own, you know, just personal well-being, looking after your food, clothing, shelter, the things you need. A second one is for your family. Third one is to make donations to the causes that you find inspiring. And then the fourth is to put away for the future. So he's not saying that you know, just pour everything into donations. I mean, five dollar, five dollars for a latte? <laughs> Can't you learn how to make your own lattes? <laughs> but there are those four categories, and they're, they're all important.
The questions don't have to be on topic. Yes. Okay, nirvana is outside of space and time, which means it's not affected by any change. The Buddha never started out with the proposition that everything is impermanent. What he starts out with is everybody wants to find happiness. And so in the context of finding happiness, there are two, change, two things that change that you have to watch out for. One is the things that you think are going to last where you're placing your happiness. And the other is your own mind. Your mind changes very easily. And these are the things you watch out for. To work against the changes in your mind, as I said tonight, is the practice of mindfulness. That's a change you have to watch out for. And as for the places where you place your happiness, this is where you use your discernment. So what will be long-lasting as opposed to what will be shorter-lasting? And then, so it's within the context of your search for happiness that you apply the teachings on inconstancy. The, the Buddha, does, the word he uses, anicca, is the negative nicca, which means constant. And the point is not so much that things don't last forever, but it's, they're not reliable. They change. And so look, you try to look for something that's more reliable by making your own mind more reliable. Like when you're, working, when you're doing concentration practice, you're actually fighting against the principles of inconstancy, stress, not self, by trying to make your mind as constant as possible, as easeful as possible, and as much under your control as possible. It's by pushing the, pushing the envelope on that that you run up against, okay, where exactly does, do things start getting inconstant, stressful, and not self? Hand in the back. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, well, it's 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 kind of a malfunction of the brain. The question is, if people have a time-space distortions, how do you explain that? And there will be some time-space distortions when the, the brain is distorted. Also, when the mind is getting into concentration, there will be distortions in your sense of the body, your distortions in your sense of time. And one of the reasons we practice concentration is so we can get past those things and recognize them as distortions. Because there's always the question, say when you hit something that's really, you know, in these experiences that sometimes come in concentration, they're pretty overwhelming, a sense of, you know, endless space or endless consciousness. And it's very easy to say, oh, this must be it. But once you get more sensitive to what the mind is doing to basically put together its experience in the present moment, there's a process the Buddha calls sankara or fabrication. And it's not just things outside being fabricated. We put together our, our sense of the present moment. Kind of raw material comes in from our past karma, and we assemble that into our experience of the present. And so the distortions come either when we're, we're doing a sloppy job when we're under the influence of drugs, or as the mind is getting into concentration and it's not used to that particular dimension, there can be some distortions there. 
And it's learning how to get recognize those as distortions and see, get more sensitive to how you're putting things together so that you can compensate. No, I would not take refuge in that. We're not, we're not looking for distortion because sometimes the mind is getting overloaded, the brain is getting overloaded, and it, you can't put things together quite right, so it feels distorted. So you have to step back and say, okay, what did I just do? What were the ways I was thinking right now? What were the perceptions I had? Was there a sensory overload? That often happens. No sensory overload. Okay, there's something going on the way your mind is putting things together. Is it a little off? And you say, okay, I want, to get, I want to figure out what did I just do right now so I can compensate. My, one of my teachers had an um, automobile accident toward the end of his life and suffered brain damage. And he was saying that, you know, okay, his brain was sending him strange perceptions, but he was there because he knew the process of perception, the how, where the labels were coming from and how they were off. They, so then you could compensate for it. So he could recognize, okay, this is a distortion. I, I can't believe it. No, you don't believe it, no. no. But it is, it is an example of that, that experience is not a given. We're not just on the passive side of experience. We're out there shaping things. And it's a very important lesson. Mm-hmm. Question way over here. Jeff, you're going to get exercise today. Can you have a profound realization outside of formal sitting or walking mm-hmm. or lying down practicing? Yes. Can you speak a little bit about that? Hopefully, when you're doing formal practice, then there's a kind of a carryover after you leave formal practice. It's like taking something out of the refrigerator. It's still cool for a while. And you, you've, you've one. And secondly, when the mind has been in formal practice, it's calmer. And when it comes out, you start seeing it as it starts picking things up. Again, you, be, you, be, you become aware, oh, I picked this up right now. I wasn't always, haven't always picked it up. And you get an insight into, oh, this is what I'm doing that's shaping my experience. And so it's, you know, the, the realizations can come at any time. So would, that, would it be possible for this person to listen to a Dharma talk and suddenly have a profound revelation? Of yeah, if the mind calms down, listening to the talk. In fact, you know, you've probably read in the canon about like, people becoming enlightened, awakened by listening to the Buddhist Dharma. And there are times when the, the, the talk is sort of right on target with one of your issues. And your mind is calm enough and is settled enough and it has enough trust in the talk to be open to it. It's, oh yeah, that's what I do. And then you can let it go. So that can happen too.
Okay, think of it as you've got a lot of stuff that's suppressed inside and there's so much activity in your daily life that it doesn't have time to come out or doesn't have the opportunity to come out because there's so much activity on the surface of the water. And when that activity calms down, okay, then these things start appearing. Now, when they're coming up, sometimes they come with a strong sense that this must be true. Always put a question mark. Not everything that comes up in the quiet mind is, is the truth. Sometimes it's swamp gas. <laughs> and I mean, you, you think about John Munn out in the, in the forest, and you've probably read about the various visions he had. You know, with Davis coming and telling him this, telling him that. And it's not that he believed this all the time. In fact, he always said, you've got to put a question mark next to it. That Ask yourself, what is the Dharma lesson here? One, does it make sense? Two, if I applied it, what would that imply? And if it's a lesson that has no, no application, say, okay, that's just you know, irrelevant. But if you actually can apply it to how you're living your life, give it a try. And then find out if it really works. You know, the Buddhist teachings to the Kalamas, don't trust anything until you figure out what, what, what it's going to do to you if you actually practice that. What is our ending time? Nine. Nine. Okay, it's nine. <laughs> One last question. One, one question over here. Question is: Is there an, there there is an end of the path? Yeah, it's called it's called you know arahantship, and it's attainable. And I mean, the Buddha said, if this were an endless path, it would, he wouldn't be teaching it. He, he taught because it, was, it provided the goal of a true happiness. I mean, that's that refuge that he promised. The refuge he was looking for. Once he found it, then he taught it other people. So the path is not the goal. That's one of those big Buddhist myths that should be mm-hmm. exposed. <laughs> the path is one thing. It's fabricated. It's something put together. The goal is something totally unfabricated, unconditioned. It really is refuge. And the Buddha said, you know, if you, if you conceive that the idea of nirvana sounds uninteresting or bland or whatever, erase that thought from your mind. That's the best thing there is. Give it a try. <laughs> Everybody who's been there said it's the best. Okay, thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.